Reading from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Well, I used to work as a radiographer in doing CT scans, things like that. We had an undergraduate student working with us as a helper. So she wasn't yet qualified to do the scans. But she could do all the stuff that goes with it, you know, getting the patient in and out of the room, doing all the paperwork, that kind of stuff. And she was really good at it. And it was such a relief when you knew she was working with you on shift. It was going to make life so much easier. But on the rare occasion that I got to one of those other tasks before she did, I'd pull a leg saying, what are you for? What is the point of you? And of course, as often when she was left waiting for me to do my bit, she could say the same to me. But to get really heavy really quickly for a moment, what are you for? What's your purpose in life? When you get to your last days, if someone asks you, what was it all for? Will you be able to give an answer? What is your purpose in life? So last week we looked at what church is 
central to God's plans for humanity. Through church, God is gathering to himself a people as we put our faith in Jesus and live as his disciples. And as we come together in our diversity as one people hidden in Christ, we're visually, physically showing off to our heavenly reality. And we're a sneak preview of how things will be when Jesus returns and into eternity. Church is a really big deal. So if as Christians, uh, our identity is primarily who we are in Christ, uh, that our identity is we are church. Well, if we're thinking about our purpose in life, we need to think about what is the purpose of church? So just what is it that God wants us to be aiming for, to be getting on with in response to his grace, uh, in light of the sure fact that we are completely safe, rescued, redeemed, hidden in Christ, now and forever? What shall we be getting on with until Jesus returns? Well, thankfully, God's not left us in the dark. The Bible's full of stuff that tells us what God wants for us as his church. And what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks are five purposes or themes that we find running through scripture. And, you know, just as a memory aid, we've adopted a word to describe each of them, each word beginning with M. So today we're looking at magnification. Then we'll look at mission, membership, maturity and ministry. So don't get hung up on the words. Uh, They're just our human effort, a memory aid um, to summarise and organise in our heads God's purposes for church that we find in the Bible. You know, you could ask me how I'm going in life. Well, how do I answer that? I could tell you about me as a worker. I could tell you about me as a husband or a dad or as uh, a healthcare patient or as a Man City fan. And in reality, they're all part of the picture of how I'm going. And they all influence each other and colour each other. You can't really separate them out. And that's especially true of today's M, magnification. This one underpins everything. This is the purpose of all the other purposes. You know, really, we could say there are four M's that are all about this M, magnification. Let's define what we mean by magnification up front. Living for God's glory is the first and most important purpose in the Christian life. We magnify the glory of God, Father, Son and Spirit, as we orient our whole lives around serving and enjoying him. This impacts our work, family, ambitions and all that we do. So let's just think about that concept of magnifying. When you look at the moon through a telescope, you don't change the size of it, do you? But because the moon is so far away, it it looks small in our visual field. But when you look at it through a powerful telescope, it fills your vision and you're like, wow, I'm looking at actual craters on the moon. When we magnify, we make bigger in our lives the glory of God. It's not that God needs our attention and worship to be glorious. We could live a thousand lifetimes and never fully grasp God's glory. 
But what does glory mean? Well, literally, uh, as it's written in the Bible, it means weightiness. And it's kind of shorthand in scripture for the pure goodness and awesomeness and holiness of God. I mean, we give things glory all the time, don't we? Um, Say if you go to a concert um, of your favourite band, you whoop and you cheer and you shout for them to come back on stage for an encore. And you really mean it because they've given you great enjoyment. You know, you come back off holiday and you bore everyone to tears with your photographs because it was a glorious time. To get our heads around God's glory and glorifying him, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. So just some background. Uh, John is imprisoned on the island of Patmos for refusing to magnify, refusing to give glory to Caesar. He's in prison and he has this revelation, vision, that gives us a glimpse of our past, present and future from the perspective of heaven. So, four points for the rest of this talk. We're made to magnify. We're saved to magnify. We're called to magnify. And we're gathered to magnify. So first, we're made to magnify. Revelation 4 and 5 are written in kind of picture language and to reveal, make clear, to try and describe the indescribable, this vision of heaven. So we've got God's rule, a throne, described in the brightest colours and and the loudest sounds available to a first century man's vocabulary. There's 24 thrones, that's 12 tribes of Israel and uh, the 12 disciples. So all of God's people from all history ever. Seven lamps and spirits. Well, seven's a number of completeness. So it's saying that God is completely there, completely present. And the creatures... They represent all created beings in in all their different types. They're multiple eyes, meaning they're fully witnessing and and don't miss any of this. And verse 8, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So they're saying that in the same way as we read in Isaiah 6. And in the Hebrew... This, the way to emphasise something was to repeat it. So if I want to say, this is the best burrito I've ever eaten, I'd say, burrito, burrito. But if I want to say, this is the best burrito in all existence ever, I'll say, burrito, burrito, burrito. God is holy, holy, holy. Always has been and always will be. He's so glorious when Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or the disciples catch just a glimpse of him, just a glimpse of God's glory. What happens? Well, they're terrified and their gut reaction is to hide because like picking up a salt and vinegar chip with a paper cut on your finger. God is just too wonderful, too holy, too amazing to behold for a sinful, mortal human. The picture is one of every kind of created being doing what we were made for, praising God and bowing down before him with never enough words to express how worthy God is to be praised. 
So you know at awards ceremonies, um, when an actor gets a, a lifetime achievement award or something like that, there are so many tributes that trapes out all these different people to say something nice. And after a while you think, oh come on, they're, all right, they're pretty good, but this is over-egging the pudding a bit. But given eternity, all of creation can't say too much about how good God is. So what is so good about God? Well, verse 11. You are worthy, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God didn't need to create us. It's not like a mythological God, Greek God or something like that who needs people's worship to get their power. No, God the Father, Son and Spirit existed in perfect, other-person-centred harmony in eternity. Well, let's just think this through. So God is perfect love and goodness in and of himself. There's nothing bad about him. There's, he's got no need for anything external to himself. And yet he chooses to create us and give us our being. Uh, nothing can exist outside of God deciding that it exists. And God can only do good, glorious things. So just by existing, whether we believe in him or not, we confirm that God is worthy of us magnifying how glorious he is. God created us to share in, in, in his experience, this experience in worshipping his perfect glory. God's not being vain or narcissistic wanting our worship because God really is that glorious. It, that means it's the ultimate kindness to create us to worship him. But there's a problem. There's a sealed scroll. A scroll representing God's plans for his creation. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. It's like that song's being playing, a song of God's glory in creation, but someone scratched the record. No one could open the scroll because no one was worthy. And that's summing up all the problems of the world. The problem that comes between us and God. See, we're made to magnify God. We're made to know his glory and give that glory to him but none of us are worthy none of us have worshipped God as he deserves as we should we've all gone our own way we've all done our bit to magnify ourselves or created things over and above God Romans 1.25 puts it like this they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. God's good plans for his creation have been short-circuited by our trying to change the blueprints and put ourselves in charge. 
And we see that all the time, don't we? We see it in broken relationships, in unfulfilled lives, trying to squeeze glory that only God possesses out of the things that he has created. But at this point, we see something new. Reading from Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive the power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power and forever and ever the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped so at this point we see something new our next heading we are saved to magnify we're made to magnify, and now we're saved to magnify. In his vision, verse 5, John is told not to weep. Don't weep. God's promised Messiah King has won, and so he can open the scrolls. But it's not a lion that John sees. It's a lamb. The imagery is of the Passover lamb, killed in place of Israelite firstborns when they were being rescued from slavery in Egypt. The six, the horns and the eyes, that's imagery meaning that the lamb is the complete ruler. The seven spirits mean that he bears God's spirit completely. The lamb is Jesus. And in Jesus, God has himself stepped into his creation, become one of us and lived a life of perfect worship. The Lamb is Jesus, 
who has redeemed us, purchased us, bought us with his own death in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our self-worship. And that Jesus the Lamb had to be sacrificed on the cross. Well, that shows us just how bad our false worship must be. And the Lamb being God himself, stepping into his creation to purchase us, shows us how gloriously loving and other person-centred God is. In giving himself up, the Lamb has triumphed. He's become worthy to un seal and unfold this scroll to complete God's plans for his creation to worship him and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth so we started with a song about how God deserves glory for his creation. Now Jesus the Lamb has changed that heavenly worship into a song about salvation. So it's like if you're a fan of a band's debut album, you know, you've, you've got it, you love it, you think it's the best album ever. And then the follow-up is even better. Believe it or not, all of these are second band's second albums. God's glory is to be magnified for creating us and now even more so for saving us, not only to worship him, but to reign with him. God's purpose for us, his rescued and redeemed people, is for us to willingly and joyfully worship him, joining him in all his glory forever. But notice, this is all by God's grace. This is all won for us by Jesus. He's opened the scroll, meaning that the plan for our eternal destiny of experiencing God's glory perfectly forever is fulfilled. It's secure. So our magnifying God, or our worship, is never about us getting closer to God. Never about earning our way to a place around his throne. Because on our own, we could never earn our way there. No, we magnify and worship God because he has saved us. Because hidden in Jesus, our heavenly reality is that we get to worship God perfectly. No bum notes, all the words we ever need, forever. So as we seek to understand God's purposes for us as, as Christians and, and together as his church, what we're doing is simply living in light of and, and living in response to the sure hope, the dead set certainty that Jesus has us safe in eternity, being church perfectly. So it's not a case of if only we get these five purposes right in our church then God will be pleased enough to let us into heaven. No, it's all already ours by faith and by grace, all won for us by Jesus. So what about the here and now? We are called to magnify, 
called to magnify, our next heading. In response to God's grace to us in Jesus, we're called to worship him forever and right now. So Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In view of our complete salvation, worship God. And not just with our heads, not just with our hearts, not just with our Sundays, but with all of who we are. This verse is picking up on the language of a thank offering that would be given in the temple. But that sacrifice was killed. It was just a temporary thing. We are living sacrifices, worshipping God with our work, our leisure, our thoughts, our deeds, our money, our family, our speech, with all of who we are. Jesus gave a good definition of what this kind of worship is, what, how we magnify God's glory. A teacher of the law asked him, this is in Matthew 22, a teacher of the law asked him what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Back again to Romans 12 verse 1. Remember our motivation for worship. In view of God's mercy. That means if we worship, uh, if we try to fulfil God's purposes for some other reason, it won't be true in proper worship. But if our worship is whole of life, every day, including everything... Where does magnifying God's glory fit in with what we get up to at church? Where does church fit in with that? Our final part of the talk, we are gathered to magnify. We've seen that we don't have to be gathered together to worship God, but that when we do, we're giving each other and the world looking on a sneak preview, a glimpse of our heavenly reality and our eternal future. And the unique thing about being gathered together at church to magnify God isn't that it brings us closer to God when we're at church, or we're already as near to God as we can be through Christ. And it's not that God is particularly present, especially present in particular places, like it was in the Old Testament. No, it used to be. It used to, you know, maybe the temple kind of thing. But now, Jesus lives in us by his Spirit. We don't need a temple, because we are the temple. But the unique thing about us magnifying God when we come together is that we are together. Together in our diversity, glorifying God, being one in Christ. We saw in last week's talk that that magnifies God's glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And a couple of weeks ago at our picnic, our first time together since lockdown, since March, we felt it glorifying God, didn't we? When we come together, when we gather together to magnify God, we can encourage one another, build one another up, serve one another, and be filled with God's word together. And all of that magnifies God's glory in a way that we can't do on our own. All of that resonates with our heavenly reality in a way that we can't do on our own. So if we take, for example, singing. 
it's really good to sing together in church, isn't it? But it's no more or less worship, according to the Bible, it's no more or less worship than, say, encouraging someone with a phone call. Paying your tax honestly on $10,000 is as much worship as singing 10,000 reasons for the 10,000th time. And when we do sing, who will we be singing to? Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father in, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we sing in church, we're singing to each other to encourage one another and we're singing praises to God to express what is on our hearts. And all of it magnifies God's glory. So magnification is really about our heart orientation, of our growing in our love and affection for God. And as your pastor, as a church, we can't engineer that in your heart but we can keep encouraging one another in the right direction by making sure our services are filled with God's word by having great music that helps us express truth helps us express what's on our hearts to God and to each other and one practical thing you could do is connect with our Spotify playlist uh, you can do that through the weekly email. There are daily, very short Bible readings to go with this service. Sign up for those via the email. They're all small things, but they all add up to make God bigger in our day-to-day. And practically, we do invest most of our work around magnification, under normal circumstances, around our Sunday gathering. And that's appropriate because although we don't only worship at church, as we've seen, it is the high point of our worship week because it's the place where we're most encouraged in our worship because it's the place where we gather together and it's the part of our work week that best reflects heaven. So to finish up, I'm just going to give you that magnification definition again because I think it summarises well what we've been saying. Living for God's glory is the first and most important purpose in the Christian life. We magnify the glory of God, Father, Son and Spirit, as we orient our whole lives around serving and enjoying him. This impacts our work, family, ambitions and all that we do. And all of this we do in response to God's grace, in the confidence that whatever our worship or magnification lacks, Jesus perfects it for us.